don't, we look at our sins, and hopefully, in a, in a uh, humble state, but we don't see them affecting other people like they truly do. We only think about their effects on ourselves. We are very, how shall I say, we are very introverted in that regard. Yes, we, we often will grieve of our sins, we'll confess, of them, confess our sins, but we seldom give thought to how they affect our wives or our children or our neighbors or the next generation. And yet, the Bible teaches us that that actually happens. And it happens not just a little bit. And this example that we have today is that happening. That the sins of a man, Saul, redound to many others, and that he has broken a covenant that is very old. The sins of Saul have kindled the wrath of God, the Scriptures say here. And the consequences of that wrath have come against Israel in the form of a famine, a three-year famine. And three years pass when David seeks the face of the Lord as to why the famine persists. One wonders why David takes three years to seek God's understanding. You would have thought after one year he would have questioned what's happening. It may be that David's closeness with God has waned somewhat because of his own sins. Remember, he was cursed in his house because of his sin with Bathsheba and also for his sins uh, which brought about uh, Uriah the Hittite's death. Nevertheless, David does finally seek God's clarifying wisdom with regard to this famine And God's response to David in verse 1 is, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. It has been many years since Saul's reign when this event occurs. Saul had reigned many years before David, and likely uh, it was many years into uh, or from his reign Uh, while he was reigning, Saul, that this event happened with the Gibeonites when he took and slaughtered so many of them. But now, in David's reign, in David's time, God has revealed to David that his wrath is kindled because of Saul's sins committed in violation of a covenant made by none other than Joshua with the Gibeonites. Now, I want us to consider, brethren, the the sequence of these events. Joshua makes a covenant with the Gibeonites when he is leading the people of Israel to capture the promised land. The Gibeonites are a clan of the Amorites, and they live on the western side of the River Jordan, in the land of Canaan. So, This is in a territory that's held by enemies of God, Canaanites and Amorites, and the Gibeonites are a clan inside this territory. It would later become the inheritance of the tribe of Benjamin. And not too far from this time would that occur. This covenant that Joshua makes with the Gibeonites likely takes place in 1450 B.C., And then centuries passed, 
And then sometime during Saul's reign as king, Saul and his bloodthirsty household slaughter many of the Gibeonites. Possibly during the time Saul put away the witches in 1 Samuel 28, verse 3. We don't know exactly when it took place, but it's likely it would have happened at that time. So if you want to take some time later today and go back to 1 Samuel 28 and read that chapter, you might have an inkling of when these things occur. We don't know that with certainty. If it did happen then, it's likely the slaughter took place in 1055 B.C. Yes, 450 years later. The famine that is described as being the consequence of Saul's breaking covenant with the Gibeonites is dated by Matthew Henry as occurring in 1021 B.C., which is the event that's in our passage today. Consider that the Israel that Israel is being judged for Saul's breaking of a 429-year-old covenant with a clan from a tribe that had been cursed by God, the Amorites. The judgment was for the murderers, murderous sins of Saul and his bloodthirsty household some 34 years before David is going through this trial, this famine, and God is now making known to David, the king of Israel that certainly God will judge his people when sin has occurred and it has not been repented of or justice has not been sought. And so we must necessarily, brother, conclude that God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts not our thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, they are higher than our thoughts. His ways are far better than our ways and yet they happen over centuries over centuries. Joshua had made a covenant with the Gibeonites without consulting God, a covenant that once made could not be broken. He thought, the Gibeonites misled Joshua. If you remember back in Joshua, uh, I believe it's chapter 9. I could be wrong on the chapter there. But the Gibeonites had feared the people of God, and they feared the God of Jehovah, the God Jehovah. As well, because the people had conquered Ai and Jericho, God's people, and they were on the march toward none other than Gibeah. And the Gibeonites were afraid. God was with this people, and he had destroyed two whole city nations, city-states, and they were in... What, Lawrence? I'm going to turn my mic off. Let's just go with the pulpit mic. Okay. I apologize for that, folks. We've been having some difficulty. We'll try to fix that. Joshua had been... Let me go back. Joshua had been misled. The Gibeonites put on old clothes, old shoes. They they took old wine that had soured in the wineskins. They took stale bread. And when the Israelites came to Gibeah, they said, oh, we're a tribe from far, far away. And we want to make a covenant with you because, after all, you, you, it, it, it's become known to us that you Israelites have made uh, a wasteland of Ai and Jericho. And we don't want to be part of your conquests. So we want to make a covenant with you and, and your God, which they do. And Joshua doesn't 
seek God's wisdom in this circumstance. And once the covenant is made, they throw off their old clothes. Oh, by the way, we live next door here. We're the Gibeonites, and we're from Gibeah. And Joshua has been misled, but he made a covenant that he would keep. And all Israel would keep that same covenant right up until the day of Saul, when he takes his bloodthirsty household to Gibeah, which is near where he was born, actually, and they slay or slaughter a great number of the Gibeonites. Not all are slain, otherwise David would not have, have had the opportunity to, to, to uh, make reparations to the Gibeonites that still lived. And so Saul's sins have now brought a famine upon Israel. God wants justice for whom? His own people? In a sense, yes. But more importantly, for the Gibeonites, Gentiles. God in the Old Covenant is making provisions for a Gentile people. And that covenant will be kept to the harm of his own people if they don't keep it, which is the circumstance that David has before him. God's ways are never unjust, brethren. His ways are righteous altogether. Yet from our perspective, it seems that God is judging seemingly innocent men, these, these sons of Saul, for the sins of their father, Saul. And before I look at these men who were executed for breaking covenant with the Gibeonites, I want to draw your attention to Psalm 15. This is a Psalm of David that may have been written during this very time, the time of the famine in Israel. It is a short Psalm, so I'll read it in its entirety. But I want you to pay particular attention to the end of verse 4. Psalm 15. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he t take up a reproach against his friend. That verse 3 lends itself to, to it possibly being written at this time. He who does not backbite with his tongue, who does, no, does evil, nor does evil to his neighbor, neighbors being Gibeonites, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. Actually, throughout the history of the Gibeonites, there's, no, there's very little recording that they, they uh, uh, weren't subservient to David throughout their captivity. In fact, they served King David, though they never converted to Judaism. Verse 4 of Psalm 15 in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Does that not sound like Joshua? He swore a covenant with the Gibeonites to his own hurt. They would live forever without harm in the land given to the Benjamites the people of Israel. That was to the hurt of the Israelites. But a righteous man swears to his own hurt and does not change. Not only did, did Joshua keep that covenant, but it was kept for centuries up until the time 
of Saul. Verse 5, he who does not put his put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. That's what a blessed man who comes into the temple of God to worship the living God is like. These are the characteristics of that kind of man, and I want us to take note of that phrase, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. David's words in this psalm speak of how one treats his neighbor, doing no evil to them. He makes a very profound statement, again at the end of verse 4, of the person who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Is there a great example of that in the Scriptures? Someone who swore to his own hurt and did not change? Could that not be said of our Lord Jesus? I'll come back to that. Joshua had sworn a covenant with the Gibeonites in Joshua 9, thinking the Gibeonites were from a far country when in fact he had been deceived and the Gibeonites were from the land of the Amorites, part of the promised land. Joshua had sworn to his own hurt, but he kept his promise. That promise had been kept up to the time of Saul when Saul and his bloodthirsty household broke the covenant. God was now requiring a reckoning, and that reckoning would fall on Saul's, quote, bloodthirsty household. There is another covenant that's being kept in this passage, though it's not at all mentioned. That is the covenant God made with Moses and Israel on Mount Sinai. There, embedded in the Ten Commandments, is a consequence appended to the Second Commandment, which we sang already this morning, and that reads, it reads from Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 4, You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me, and keep my commandments. Brethren, God is keeping this stipulation in 2 Samuel chapter 21 with Israel, pursuant to his covenant with Moses on Sinai. The succeeding generations of bloodthirsty men in the household of Saul are being judged according to this commandment. God is visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate him. Now I must be very careful here. When God made his covenant with Moses and Israel on Sinai, God also stated in Deuteronomy 24:16, The fathers shall not be put to death for their children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. Yet as we read in 2 Samuel 21, the Gibeonites ask for the lives of Saul's descendants, and they are given to him. And it appears, by the silence of the Scriptures, that David did not err in doing that. Now, David did not take their lives. Remember, the Gibeonites said, we don't want you to take the lives of any on our behalf. But they did ask for seven lives, 
who they then executed for the sins of Saul, and I contend, the sins of his household. Has David violated this part of God's covenant made with Moses? I think not. Notice the text makes clear that Saul's household was, quote, bloodthirsty, end quote. This is likely a reference to those who aided Saul in his slaughter of the Gibeonites. There's no, it's not likely that Saul did this all by his lonesome. He had help. Well, who would have helped him? My, my belief, it's probably that Saul's clan did the work because after all, the Gibeonites lived in uh, uh, the land of Benjamin, which was part of his inheritance. I think it was from envy that Saul slew these Gibeonites and he took his sons with him. I believe that these seven men who die as a result of this circumstance with the Gibeonites were likely murderous men, men who had aided Saul in that work. Lastly, there is yet another covenant that is mentioned in the passage in verse 7 that refers to the oath David made with Jonathan. In his oath with Jonathan, David, many years before, agreed to respect Jonathan's posterity, and he does so here by sparing Jonathan's son Mephibosheth. In verse 7. Now in verse 8, there's another man named Mephibosheth. There are two Mephibosheths in this passage. We need to be careful about that. And you don't want to say that name too many times fast because you'll mess it up. But Mephibosheth, there are two different Mephibosheths here. One is the son of Jonathan. And you say, well, did he participate in the killing of the Gibeonites? Not likely. Remember, Mephibosheth is lame. My guess is he would have to be taken, carried wherever he went. The scriptures seem to indicate that. My guess is he wasn't carried to kill Gibeonites. He was left at home. He is spared here, but the other Mephibosheth is given over to the Gibeonites. Well, what are we to make of these circumstances? This is a hodgepodge of broken and kept covenants. Our Lord God made a covenant with Moses that he is keeping. Joshua, his servant, has made a covenant with the Gibeonites, which he kept. David now is trying to honor that same covenant with the Gibeonites. On the other hand, Saul has broken that covenant with the Gibeonites to his harm and to the harm of his own children. And this brings me to our applications. The first application has to do with covenant-making and keeping. Brethren, God works with mankind by way of covenants. He has always and always will. He never changes, the book of Malachi teaches us. God made covenants with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, which were and are everlasting covenants. Yes, everlasting covenants. Each had a particular emphasis, and we're pointing to yet another covenant God would make with his own son, our Lord Jesus Christ, called the New Covenant. God is a covenant-keeping God, and this is evident in our passage today. Consider the length of time that passed from Joshua's covenant with the Gibeonites to the famine in Israel. God's representative covenant... 
God's representative, Joshua, had covenanted with the Gibeonites on behalf of all Israel, and the repercussions are felt some 400 plus years later. God never forgets. God never forgets. He keeps covenant. And when a covenant is made on behalf of his people with another people, he remembers that. And he holds his people to that. The Bible reminds us over and over again that God is not slack concerning his promises. And this is true even when it benefits a people who are not otherwise covenanted with God, such is the case with the Gibeonites, the Gentiles. Here God is teaching us that our yes needs to be yes, and our no needs to be no, even when it is to our own harm, as David wrote in Psalm 15.4. The people of God lost a portion of their inheritance to the Gibeonites because they made a covenant to their own harm, and yet God expected them to keep that covenant. God warns us that we should consider carefully our oaths and our vows. They should not be made lightly, for God will hold us to our oaths and vows, even when they are made to our own harm. Even when they are made to our own harm. Brethren, that's a hard lesson to learn, but it's an important lesson. When we make covenants, God expects us to keep them, even if it's made to our own harm. We are supposed to very carefully weigh the covenants we make. When I say covenants, I'm talking contracts. I'm talking oaths and vows. Sometimes we would enter into an oath or a vow to our own harm. Who does that on a regular basis? Who makes an oath or a vow to their own harm on a regular basis? Don't our military men, some of you have served in the military. Some are currently serving in the military. You've taken an oath to your own harm, haven't you? I will give my life for the protection of the freedoms and liberties that we have in our country. What about law enforcement men? What about emergency responders, firemen, EMTs? Don't they all take oaths and vows to their own harm, potentially? And didn't our Savior Jesus Christ take an oath and a vow in a covenant with his Father to come to this earth and to give his life a ransom for many to his own harm? Indeed, he did. And with gratitude, we should look upon that and say, I will follow my Savior even if I take an oath or a vow to my own harm. Now I want to speak to the fathers of our congregation or the would-be fathers of our congregation or the grandfathers of our congregation of which I am two, a father and a grandfather. Your actions have consequences in the lives of your sons. I don't believe God requires your sons to pay for your sins. I believe that that provision in Deuteronomy still is the provision for us today. Nor do I believe that the sins of the son should be meted out on a father. But I do say that your actions have consequences in the lives of your sons. 
David's sons learned conspiracy and murder from none other than David when he conspired against Uriah the Hittite and had him murdered. They also learned what it meant to be an adulterer from their father David. Similarly, Saul's sons learned conspiracy and murder from him. God is not mocked, and his judgment was being meted out here. But remember, those sons followed in their father's footsteps. Fathers, what are you teaching your sons? What are your actions teaching your sons? Would-be fathers, what would your actions be teaching your sons? Grandfathers, what have you taught your sons? And what are you now teaching your grandsons? I want to commend to the fathers of our congregation that you teach your sons the fear of God first. The fear of God first. In the midst of our passage today, we saw that the Gibeonites had made this covenant with Joshua because why? They feared the God of Israel. There's a good reason to teach that fear to our sons. That they would understand that God is a covenant-keeping God. Both to their blessing as well as to their cursing should they break His covenants. So fear God. We are sinners and we must continually humble ourselves before God in confession and repentance so that we do not spiral downward into the sins that our sons adopt from us. We don't want them to spiral downward. We want them to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they need examples of that. One thing I hope in the not-too-distant future, although it might be a while, I want to see these floors finished. Say, why on earth is that important to this message, Chuck, Pastor Chuck? Why is that? Because I want us to kneel before the Lord in confession of our sin. And I'm fearful that some of the nails and the things sticking up would pierce our knees if we did it now. I want to teach our children our sons, what humility means in the worship of God. Psalm 95, Come, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. I want us to do that. We need to teach visibly to our children, particularly our sons, what it means to be humble men before God, that He might lift them up. For you see, that's the promise of the Scriptures. When we humble ourselves before God, He lifts us up. He brings us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And we need to be an example that mimics our Lord Jesus Christ toward His Father. Over and over, Jesus said to His followers and His enemies, I have come to do the will of My Father. That was Jesus Focus. That was his, his commitment. That was what he would do regardless of the cost. Even to his own harm, he had been 
had made covenant with the Father to bring salvation to man. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he prayed, not my will, but your will be done, God, uh, J- Jesus, the God-man, had chosen to take that covenant to his own harm, which happened that he might bring salvation to us. He came to live, promote, and extend righteousness throughout all creation. As fathers of covenant children, we are to do the same. We are to be conformed to the image of Christ, that faithful son who made covenant even to his own harm. Brethren, the benefits of keeping covenant in that way were down to many generations. You'll remember, as I read in the second commandment, to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, God will bring his judgment. But to a thousand, he will show mercy. To those who love him and keep his commandment. In Deuteronomy 7, 9, that promise flows to a thousand generations to those who love him and keep his commandments. A thousand generations. How long is that? A generation in the Bible typically is 40 years. Times a thousand? That's 40,000 years. I'm a young earther. I believe things have been around about 6,000 years. We've got a long time yet to go. You see, when we keep covenant with God, God blesses us beyond our imaginations and to the generations that follow. May that be our desires as fathers, grandfathers, and would-be fathers in our church. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this example from 2 Samuel 21, where covenants are made and broken and we understand the consequences of both. And so, Father, we pray that even to our own harm that we would be covenant-keeping men when we make promises to our wives, to our children, to our children's children, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to those whom we engage in commerce, to those in our society when it comes to justice. May we be covenant-keeping men and women, faithful to the end, even if it is to our own harm, that we might bring honor to your name. And Father in heaven, we will leave the increase to you. For just as your promises are sure to the wicked, they are most assuredly assured to the righteous as well, those whom you have called out of darkness into your marvelous light and have clothed us us with the righteousness of Christ. We pray, Father, for the advancement of your kingdom. We pray for it here in Ludlow, northern Kentucky, this region, this country, and throughout the world. We look forward to the day when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the seas. 
We know that your promise to your son is that of the increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end.